What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Rafael Garcia back for episode 135 of the MMA Reigns podcast. Uh, Shawan, how are you doing there, sir? Why don't you tell everybody what's up? I'm doing fine, as usual. Ready to talk about the wild and crazy world of mixed martial arts. As always, man, how are the girls? Uh, they're good. We got a basketball tournament I'm coaching. They had a JV team. They split them up up into two teams so i'm gonna be coaching one game after another for about a four-hour block so it will be a very exhausting weekend yeah it definitely sounds like something man i um do not envy you at all but what i do envy (laughs) is your ability to break down some fights so let's go ahead and talk about some of the action that we saw this past weekend at ufc vancouver where donald serrani was stopped in the first round justin gaethje brought the hammer and got cowboy out of there before five minutes could pass. Uh, what do you think about this fight? I want to talk about a couple of different angles when it comes to what we saw here. But first and foremost, let's always get your breakdown and analysis of what we saw within those uh, within that five-minute time span. Well, the, the main thing is a lot of people now are talking about how Justin's got good defense. He's harder to hit than you would think. And the fact of the matter is Justin's always had good defense. The difference is now, instead of him going full bore ahead, throwing volume, loading up on power shots, and being determined to to break someone or crush them. Now he's exerting a little bit more restraint, a little bit more poise. Instead of just throwing every shot out there, throwing the kitchen sink at everybody, he's picking his shots more. He's not doing anything that if you knew what you were looking at and paid close attention, he's not doing anything he didn't do before. He's, he, he showed some improvement in the pocket, a little bit better on the slips, not, not relying solely on that high double forearm guard or that high guard he uses a lot being a little bit more proactive with the head movement and the slips but based on what i know of trevor whitman i believe trevor whitman's worked on those things with justin throughout the time he's been with them because if he hadn't there's no way you pick that up in two or three months where you do it against a guy as good as edson you do it as good against a guy who's got the length and reach of a fig you could do it against a guy with as much seasoning and balance of skills as donald serrano you've had to have already been working that into your regimen and into your curriculum and now you just place an extra emphasis on it so you can perfect it so he came out and the biggest thing the biggest thing that that made me concerned for donald was that everybody was worried that justin was going to just drown him in pressure take some shots give some shots and basically break him down to the body and overwhelm him donald cerrone got the fight he wanted justin wasn't in his face he was it wasn't in a phone booth he was doing a distance kickboxing match with donald and instead of Donald fighting like a veteran, establishing his jab, mixing in the front kick, snap kick to the chest, to the body, push kick, he really just conceded range and started bombing. That's essentially what got him caught. He came in forward, throwing those, he likes to rush in with that blitz of punches. Most guys back up, and he chops away with them with the leg kick. Against somebody like Gaethje, who's known for going forward, he backed up a little bit, but for the most part, Gaethje held his ground and just waited for Donald to come in, and he ran him into a big right hand and put him away. And that was pretty much the end of the fight. It was shocking to me because I figured if I figured Justin would give him some space, but I figured if Justin gave him some space, Donald would use his long-range weapons a little bit better, set his offense up a little better, kind of protect himself because as he's gotten older, his chin, has, he hasn't been as durable. He hasn't recovered from punishment quite as well as he used to. But he's gotten a lot better about using his footwork, using his range kind of setting a distance and operating just on the edge of it to protect himself defensively. He didn't do any of that. He ran straight forward, ran into a right hand, was stunned, then ran into another one and was finished. And that was pretty much the end of the fight. So it was a good performance by Gaethje. It kind of highlights how hard he hits and how devastating and calculating he can be. But as far as people who were really impressed by the defensive, the defensive motions and all that stuff, I, I wasn't one of them. We had Trevor Whitman on our show about a year ago. And Trevor said, my idea is to turn you into the best version of yourself. And this is really the best version of Justin Gaethje. He's still a pressure fighter. He still wants to pressure you. But now, instead of walking right in on pressure, he's still aggressively pressuring, but he's trying to create openings with fakes and off of counters instead of just bull rushing into you and taking whatever you have to offer and then firing back on you. He's just using a little bit more technique, which he's always had. He's just making a conscious decision now. I'm going to be a little bit more poised and a little bit more disciplined. But the thing about Justin is, He's still in the in his back pocket. He knows that if he has to go to war, he can. Which is most guys who are technicians, they don't have that. He has both sides of it. He can go to war for five rounds, or he can box you, and and he can be technical for five rounds now. 
It's just he he has both sides of it now, and more people are starting to see that. But it's always been there. So let's start there because you mentioned something about being the best version of Justin that we've seen. Something that a lot of people are pointing out, Lou Thomas talked about this highly on his show on Monday, was that Justin fought in a very calculated way, pop shotting a lot of, um, or not pop shotting, but basically being a sniper against Donald Sterling. He did the same thing against Edson Barbosa, in fact, before this, where he's hitting them with a lot of counter shots, putting them away with one hits that are very well-timed and very uh, accurate in their placement. So he highlighted the fact that Justin isn't tired after these fights. If you go back to what he did in World Series of Fighting, he was going out there, guns blazing. Think back to his fight against Melvin Gillard, where he's out there just guns blazing, look like he's trying to hit him with everything uh, in the kitchen sink all within five, five minutes. Do you think that this is a change that a lot of people predicted when he came into the UFC? And does this make him as an exciting fighter as he was when he was in World Series of Fighting? Or does this make him uh, more exciting in the sense that he's adding longevity and he's adding more strategy and calculation to his fights? Well, on the first answer, it is an adjustment. Most people said when you get to the UFC, that whole, I'm just going to bum rush and throw throw haymakers and get into wars is going to have to be adjusted because the UFC level guys are too good for you to be able to do that and win. And to a degree, they are right. Because now he's being more restrained, he's showing a little more distance, he's showing more layers. But the thing about it is, what he's doing is he's showing more layers. He's showing more defense. The fact of the matter, as I said, it's like when we have fights and you you ask me about a fight and you're like, why do you think this guy can't do this if he knows it's a weakness? Six weeks in a camp isn't enough time for you to figure out defensive slips, timing on counters, how to roll under shot. It's not enough time for you to drill home and make second nature, the specific techniques and approaches you need to use for somebody. The only way that works is if over a period of time, you've been working on certain parries, slips, blocks, counters, and then once you you have a fight announced, now you're specifying it, looking for specific counters, specific triggers, but you've been working on that defense, the positioning, the angles, different layers of defense. You've been working on that for months and months and months and years and years, and now you're just specifying. That's how it gets razor sharp. So Justin Gaethje is just basically what he's doing is he's slowing things down. He's showing a little bit more patience. And now for the people who didn't see the defense before, who didn't see the method behind the madness in his earlier fights, now they can see it. He's making it easier for you to see that he's got technical defense, positioning, distance management, ability to draw, draw feints in without just running right into your face. For people who know what they're looking at, they saw the whole, they saw the whole time. Multiple writers have made articles. I know I made an article about two years ago about how his defense is underrated. So people, certain people saw it, but now, now the regular fans and the fighters who honestly don't watch much film and don't really pay attention to MMA enough, now they're starting to see it. But it was there to, it was there to be seen the whole time. It's just now he's making a point of showing it to you. As far as the excitement, it's still exciting because he's still knocking people out. He's knocking, knocking them out in devastating fashion. Now it's not as much of a, a back and forth kind of brawl, but now it's exciting in that Mike Tyson way where he's literally hitting guys and guys are quitting. I mean, or going away. I don't want to say quitting, but he's hitting guys and they're just going away. And whether it's boxing or mixed martial arts, everybody loves a guy, football, even baseball, everybody likes a guy who can put somebody away with one hit. We all like the home run hit, the knockout tackle, the big punch. Everybody loves that. So now he's excited because he's just finishing guys so, so efficiently and so cold-bloodedly. It, it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's not as much entertaining as far as back and forth, but as far as just seeing somebody coldly and calmly assassinate someone in a ring or a cage, that's pretty exciting. It's hard not to get excited when he's just walking through guys and like the first shot he lands is sending guys to the hospital. So on top of that, let's kind of segue from there and talk about what's next for both of these men. In my opinion, looking at what Justin has done, I think that one or two ways should go with him. One should be either the Conor McGregor fight. Uh, This fight was originally booked or it was planned for July until I think McGregor injured his hand. Or he should get the winner of Ferguson and um, Namago Madoff. Now, the fact that that Ferguson and Namago Madoff fight has not been officially announced yet, uh, I think it's a little bit difficult to project out past that because for all we know, that fight could be on the on the January card, and then that could put uh, Justin in like another holding pattern where he has to wait six more months 
on top of that before he would get that title shot. I do believe he is the next man in line for a title shot behind Tony Ferguson, but I believe he does get some value and he gets a major payday if he find if he was to find a way to get a fight against Conor McGregor and get it booked on the correct card. I don't think this isn't, in my opinion, this isn't a main event fight for a pay-per-view um, with McGregor being involved. He's, he demands that position, but I don't think that this is a main event affair, but I do believe that that's the best fight for him outside of um, the winner of the Namago Madoff versus Ferguson fight. What do you think about that? Uh, if he fights McGregor, that will be the headline of a pay-per-view just because of the way he's been finishing people and McGregor come, coming back against pro- probably the second or third most dangerous person in the lightweight division who's on a three-fight win streak, who's knocked out three guys in a row, you know, that they'll make that a pay-per-view. That, that'll be a headline of pay-per-view that will be the show and that will break some records because it's not just a dangerous fight as in a Khabib, he can wrestle and submit you. This is the guy who's going to give McGregor the fight he wants. He's coming to knock you out or to get knocked out. Personally, I don't know if he takes that fight because as much as I like Justin Gaethje, the fact of the matter, the game he's playing now, whether he plays his normal game of pressure and subtle defense or he tries to stay at range and draw encounters. I know Conor McGregor isn't as sharp as he used to be, but I'd have to think that in a fight of that magnitude, he would be razor sharp and he'd be ready to go. And he's not beating Conor McGregor in a long range distance kickboxing match. And if he just wants to throw volume and throw pressure, that's fine too. But, you know, even a rusty Conor was able to back up could be Nurmagomedov, a rusty Conor who wasn't, who wasn't really focused and wasn't really in the best shape, was able to take a round off him, survive on the ground, and, and fight at a fairly high pace. So I, stylistically, to me, it's just a bad matchup. But as far as the money, that's like retirement type. You saw what he did for Nate Diaz. You saw what he did with it for Ed, Eddie Alvarez financially. So I, I get why that fight might happen. As far, as far as the Khabib fight, the only way i take the fight for him, I wouldn't be a backup because the way... Um, as Trevor told us earlier, the way Justin fights, the way he prepares, there's no halfway around it. Every time he goes into a camp, there's a certain amount of punishment, a certain amount of punishment he puts his body through to be in its shape, to be ready for the level of contact and the level of intensity. And even though he's being more technical now, you know he still trains at a high intensity because he needs to have that if the fight goes to that that aspect where it's an all-out brawl, all-out firefight. He's got to have that in his back pocket. You don't waste that being a backup. You only go through that training camp and go through that focus if you're 100% going to be the guy. So until they say he's the guy, I don't think he's going to take another fight unless it's Connor. I think he's just going to sit and wait for the winner and then and take his spot as the next challenger. But I wouldn't, unless he's fighting Connor, I wouldn't take anything else. Connor's a big money fight. Connor's still the money fight. Everybody says they don't care until he comes back. Watch what happens. But um, outside of that, yeah, he's, he's not going to be a backup or a spare guy. He's going to wait his turn and see who wins, and then he's going he's gonna to put his name in the hat, put his hat in the ring for the title shot. So let's talk about the other side of the fight in Donald Cerrone. And I let me look, pull this up real quick because I'm not sure off the top of my head. Give me one second to pull these numbers up. But I'm interested in your thoughts about Donald Cerrone as a current um, threat to the UFC lightweight division. Like, where does he fit? He is... Currently riding a is a two fight yes a two fight losing streak he's three and three in his last six um where he and he was stopped by both Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje the, the doctor stoppage in the Ferguson fight was uh or the stoppage in the Ferguson fight was due to his eye basically blowing up but he is in an intriguing place where I do not believe uh, he has the last, well, okay, I was going to say he hasn't defeated a ranked opponent, but he actually defeated Al Iaquinta. That's his last win. And Al is currently sitting in the sixth position uh, in the lightweight division. Outside of that, his last ranked victory may have been over Alex Oliveira, who at the time I believe he was ranked, or yeah, I believe that may have been his last ranked opponent that he defeated and that was back at uh back in 2016 um what do you think about his current position at as a fighter because you know he he has the ability to bounce back and forth between 170 and 155 uh this isn't the Donald Cerrone of old what does a win over Cerrone mean in today's MMA landscape well it still carries weight because even though he He's not. I honestly believe moving to welterweight was good for him because he had a quickness advantage. He was 
light or he was used to dealing with a higher level of speed of 55 no matter how athletic the guys of welterweight are they're not quite as athletic as the guys at 55 the problem was in all those fights and when i mentioned this before when he was fighting story he was fighting matt brown he fought jorge masvidal in all these fights win or lose he was taking huge amounts of punishment and this is in the later stage of his career where you don't recover as much and you don't take and he was he's he's never been great at taking punishment never so now he's taking punishment from guys who are on fight night are like 180, 185, if not 190. And he's been in all these wars, so it's affected his ability to absorb punishment even more. But the thing about it is Donald's skill set is better than it's ever been. He's had, he did he did he did well at welterweight and even coming back to lightweight, you know, he beat he broke Mike Perry's arm, dislocated his shoulder, whatever he did. Then he beat Alex Hernandez in a comeback fight. And then he uh beat Ally Quinta and then he fought Tony, lost. And then he fought uh, um, Justin and lost again. So he's really only lost to essentially two of the top three fighters in the division. And he lost to, to and, and he lost in manners that were exciting, but he didn't take when the Tony Ferguson fight, he took some punishment. Justin Gage fight, it was short. They stopped it, so he didn't take a lot. So he's only lost to the best. He hasn't been losing to middling fighters. He hasn't lost to one-dimensional fighters. He hasn't lost to up-and-coming fighters. He's lost to guys who have shown a progression of skill athleticism and a certain level of accomplishment as far as who they've beaten. So a win over Donald Cerrone still has some merit to it. It still has some, it has some cachet to it, but it's clear that he's not who he used to be. And for the habits he has, which is starting slow. And even though he's gotten defensively better, he's still not super slick. It's a guy with certain matchups. You kind of know how the fight's going to go. You match him up against guys who can't pressure him and aren't really one shot kind of knockout guys. He's all right. You put him up against guys who can finish with one shot, or you put him up against guys who pressure a lot, and you start seeing the holes come out. Now, he's learned how to adjust and, and manage it a little bit better, but it's still a weakness he has. Going to the body still a weakness he has, and it's not something that's going to go away at this stage of, his, stage of his career. The concerning thing about this fight is, like I said, he got the fight he wanted. That fight was fought at the pace and the range he wanted, and he st- still got smoked. And that's not a shot at Justin Gagey. It's not a diss towards him, but that would have been—that's the— Best case scenario, if anybody would have talked about Donald Cerrone and said, how could he win this fight? There's certain things he would have had to do, and he was given the room and the time to do them, and he didn't do any of them. He didn't look like, I don't know about you, but he didn't look like a veteran fighter to me. He didn't look like a guy with 40s in the fight. He didn't fight like one. He he, he fought kind of like he was nervous. He fought like he couldn't figure things out. And I get that Justin's got good footwork. I get that he's got good defense. But when you get to a certain level as a fighter, and you've been competing at the level he's competing at, you get by on craftiness and skill and he did not show craftiness or skill in that fight so let me ask you a question then who do you go to next i am interested in seeing if the ufc would pair him against someone like a gregor gillespie but i could also see them turning around and giving him a rematch like a um edson barbosa in my opinion though i think that this fight that um shows that donald needs to take some time off and we all know that he's not going to be the one to take some time off but that may help him build some longevity in his career because time away can do a lot of different things. And he is one that doesn't take any time away for whatever reason that's that for whatever reason that may be. We, we, we know he's made millions of dollars well, probably close to a couple million dollars fighting at this point in time through all the other uh, financial aspects that come with that. But there has to be some value in him taking a little bit of time off. I don't think it happens, but I would, if not, maybe Gregor, uh, Gregor Gillespie or Edson Barbosa. What are your thoughts? I can see that. I don't think they would give him that kind of matchup. I, I mean, I think they won him in big fights. I mean, the Gaethje fight was a big fight. The uh, the Ferguson fight is a big fight, so I get why those fights are made. I mean, if they wanted to give a, a safe comeback fight against a ranked guy, I can see, see them giving him Connor because Connor is still a name, and that would be a money fight for Connor, be a money fight fight for Cowboy, a chance for him to redeem himself, go out on a high note, get, getting a career high payday. Um, I don't really want to see him with a lot of young overcomers. I want to see him against guys who are who've earned the right to fight Donald Cerrone. And I know he'll take any fight, but at this stage, you should be taking fights that benefit you as much as they benefit somebody else. Donald beat some 13th ranked guy. What does that do for him? You know, and he's fought all the other guys except for Khabib, who are higher up, who, who can really benefit him if he beats them. So I'd like to see him get a big fight with a highly ranked guy or a money fight with Connor before he closes calls it a day. I, I want I would like to see him get 
get that kind of payday. I know he's he's made a lot of money, but he's made it the hard way. Fight of the night, submission night, knockout of the night, all that kind of sense. I'd like to see him get his shot to get the big get the big platform, get the big payday and see what happens. True, true. So let's move on from there. Let's talk about some other aspects of UFC Vancouver. Glover Teixeira. And he had a pretty interesting fight against Nikita Krylov. He won, I believe it was a split decision. And yeah, I think so. This fight was more interesting to me than I thought it was going to be. I tweeted this after the fight was over. I thought it was going to be a blowout. I thought Glover was going to walk in here and blow the doors off of Krylov. And I thought it was going to be comedy watching. But we got the exact opposite. Krylov looked good. He had Glover in some dangerous positions a couple of times through, through grappling. But he was put in more dangerous spots by Glover. And here it is. Glover is defeating yet another young. And I say young in air quotes. Maybe you could say like a newer name, a guy kind of rise up, up the ranks. But what it, what does Glover mean for the light heavyweight division? Is he someone that you could see getting back to the title picture? Or is he just going to be the guy that stops up-and-comers from getting anywhere near the belt? Well, the fact of the matter is at some point, Unless unless he's been John Fitched, where they just hate him, at some point it, it'd be almost impossible not to get him a title fight because he just keeps knocking. What is this like his third or fourth fight in a row? A win? I want to uh, say yes, it's like he's his one, three or four, three or four in the. I mean, like it's getting to the point now where he's got to be somewhere close to getting a title fight. I mean, a, a three fight win. I mean, a two fight winning streak, and and light heavyweight got Anthony Smith a title shot. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really take a whole lot and. Like I said, I'd almost want him to get one because at this point he's doing the same thing that John Fisher used to do. He's knocking off all these young contenders, and the only way to really get rid of him is for one of these guys to knock him out or to give him a title fight again, watch him get smoked, and then he's out of the picture. He's all the way at the bottom. And all those guys who are still up at the top can move up for title fights. He's essentially just thinning out the competition because he's the old guy who they just can't get past, and it's kind of tying up the division. Notice If you, if you notice, they haven't given him any of the real young guys who've got a who have kind of prospects, Johnny Walker, all them, they haven't put him in with Glover because there's a chance he beats them. And they don't want that. They don't want the guys who, who are showing some athleticism and some flash. They don't want to take the risk that they get knocked off and sent tumbling down the ladder by Glover. I mean, he's he's not what he used to be. Um, some of the limitations in his game are showing up. He's still not super sturdy. He did much better in the stand-up than I thought he would. I, I thought he really had trouble in the stand-up and, and in, in my person, he was kind of winning the stand-up. He was imposing his will a little bit. The grappling was more competitive than I thought it would be. But the, because I thought he, like you, I thought it'd be one-sided. But I figured he'd be forced to take a guy down or forced to grapple. And when he couldn't get those takedowns, he he was holding his own on the feet. I can't say he was getting dominated or really knocked around or close to being KO'd on the feet. He was, if nothing else, he was he was holding his own at the worst. He was holding his own at the best. He was winning the exchanges on the feet. But yeah, he's he's just a guy who's basically a roadblock, and um, they put you in with them. There's a pretty good chance you're going to come out with a loss and t- take two steps down the ladder as a result of losing to Glover. Yeah, I definitely don't think we're seeing any uh, young up-and-comers getting a fight with him anytime soon. Another guy that at some point in time we called a young up-and-comer, but that's well past, is Todd Duffy. And he had another odd situation where he gets an eye poke, he gets poked in the eye, and he's asking the ref for time. You oddly don't get time enough time for getting poked in the eye like you do uh, when you get kicked in the nuts, although the ref has the discretion to decide how much time to wait before calling the fight, which is a little odd when you think of, think of the actual rules. But his fight ended up ending no contest because he got poked in the eye. And what were your thoughts about this? First, I thought this was an interesting fight. It was much more competitive than I thought it was going to be. Um, both Duffy and Hughes were landing some big shots. They had some pretty big moments. Hughes got dropped at one point in time. So Duffy was was winning the fight, if, if you want to look at it from a scorecard perspective. But this fight was interesting. It, it, was, it was more exciting than I thought it was going to be. But it ended the way it did. What were your thoughts about the ending? And what does the UFC do with Duffy now? Because they just can't seem to get anything out of this guy long term. It just, I mean, he's a guy who loses fights in the most ridiculous ways. You've seen fights where he's dominating and then turn around and get knocked out. You've seen fights where he just gasses and gives up. And then he, or there's various fights where he's been injured or he's on some kind of highlight reel KO. Like I said, Duffy's always been a big, strong, athletic guy who's never who's never been long on skills or high on IQ. You know, he's fought in a very inefficient manner. He's fought in a very non-technical manner. And and he's the biggest, the best thing you could say about him is he was durable, explosive, athletic, physical, and hit hard. 
when you think of Todd Duffy, you don't think of a high-skilled grappler, high-level wrestler, high-level striker. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't. Somebody said a best striker in the heavyweight division. I wouldn't think of Todd Duffy. You said, you know, good defensive fighter. I wouldn't think of Todd Duffy. You say high-level wrestler. I wouldn't say think of Todd Duffy. You think of high-level grappler. I wouldn't think of Todd, Todd Duffy either. He's just a big, athletic, aggressive guy who's gotten by on his size, his strength, his, and his aggression. And when it hasn't been enough against guys who can either level out the field with athleticism and ability, he either gets knocked out. And when he fights guys of a certain skill level, with a certain level of experience, he gets knocked out. I don't know what you can do with him because even in fights where he's set up to win, something always goes wrong and he finds a way to lose or he wins in an unimpressive manner that takes away any momentum that the UFC was trying to get behind him. And that's been the story of his his career he's always lost when he's stepped up a level and even when he's won sometimes it's been great and other times it's just been underwhelming so he's never been able to get get any traction as a real star in the heavyweight division nobody's ever thought of him as a real star in the heavyweight division past his initial foray into it it was all untapped potential if you really think about it he looks like a guy who should have been great but he was never able to accomplish any level of greatness in his fights True, I will agree with you on that there. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was uh, Tristan Conley. Did you see that one that he picked up over the gymnast turned mixed martial arts in Michelle Pereira? Um, this, this, uh, man, Conley took the fight on, I think, six days' notice, fought up a weight class, and walked out of there about, I think, like $130,000. It was an amazing moment. You know, that's kind of one of those moments that MMA is built on where the underdog picks up a picks up a huge win like that. But this was it it was silly to me. Um I could not imagine being as someone who coaches fighters, I couldn't be I couldn't imagine watching that and not being like, you know what, this is what you want to go out there and do, we'll fucking throw the towel and we'll go home right now because what the fuck are you doing? Like Every fight in the UFC is a moment where you can't get back. We know how the UFC books people. We know how, I mean, Pereira, he was ranked highly coming into this fight. There's no telling who he gets booked against next and who what happens in those fights, all because of what he was doing here. I am not laughing at this minute, but I thought I was, I couldn't be, I, I thought of all my years of athleticism and, and playing sports and, as, a, as someone who has been coaching and, and, and has had some very important coaches in my life, I could just see a coach standing at me, shaking their head, like, we're going to snatch you out the game for the way you're behaving out here. And this it was just ridiculous to me. But, I mean, he got what he deserved, and he lost a decision here, so you can't really even be mad at it. What were some of your thoughts about this fight and how it went down? The funny thing about it is he wasn't really trying, but in the spots he was trying, he was dominating the fight. And he even in goofing around, it's not like Conley was able to really take over the fight or really put something on him. He was just actually trying and consistently putting in effort, and Pereira was fighting in spots, so mostly trying to put on a show, you know, putting, trying to land a Superman punch or a flip or a flip kick or, or do something spectacular that would make the highlight reels for ESPN and all across the uh, sports media. So even in this win... Connolly didn't look great. He didn't look particularly impressive. He didn't seem particularly so high level. It's just in the instance where he was doing something, Kerr wasn't doing anything except mindless gymnastics. And if and the sad thing is, even though he lost the fight, if you really watch ESPN and Fox Sports and all the sports outlets, they don't show Connolly winning the fight. They show Pereira doing backflips and spinning kicks and Superman punches. So even though he lost, He's probably a bigger name and a bigger star than he was had he won the fight. I mean, all the clips I saw of it were him doing flips and the other guy running away. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's the most important thing. But if you wanted to make a name and get yourself across to the mainstream media, I think they'd recognize Pereira before they'd recognize Connolly at this stage. And, you know, it's a setback. But in the back of his mind, he could always say, I didn't really try. I wasn't really giving my best. And he wasn't. I mean, the only thing bad about it is they gave him a setup fight, a fight where he was supposed to put on a show and he was supposed to get a spectacular win. And because of his goofing around and lack of professionalism, he didn't get it. But did he get some attention? 
his name out there a little more? Are people going to be interested in seeing him fight a little bit more? Maybe. I know a lot of people were asking me about that guy who was doing all the flips in the cage. And they said, I thought you couldn't do that. If you did that in a movie, they said, if you did that, that's movie fight. And if you did, it would get you knocked out. That guy didn't. He didn't get knocked out. I was like, he didn't win either. They're like, yeah, but he didn't get knocked out. He did more damage than the other guy. And it's, it's hard to argue that point. When you actually watch the fight, he lost just because he wasn't taking it seriously. But even then, he didn't get beat up. He didn't get taps. He didn't get dominated. He was still, there's an argument to be made that he won the fight. And, you know, him losing is just like an F you to guys who like the showboat. But the fact of the matter is Conley didn't do anything spectacular or anything particularly technical that won in the fight. He just was trying to fight while Prayer was just trying to put on a show. That's essentially the difference. Yeah, some definitely some good insight there because uh, we did. You really only did see highlights of him doing his flips and all that stuff. Um, on really, I, I saw that backflip highlight. You know how many times yeah. I've seen that in an hour. Yeah, like you can't pay for that publicity. That I had no idea. Like a friend of mine said that to me. I had no idea what was going on. So yeah, you're you're definitely 100 percent right about that. Um, and next, next fight he has, I guarantee you, the UFC will use that back that highlight of him backflipping and missing spin kicks. I guarantee they're gonna use it. So. He might have won, lost the battle, but he might have won the war. He, he might have a higher Q rating. In fact, I'll guarantee the second biggest story outside of Gaethje getting the knockout was Pereira. Everybody's talking about his boneheadedness or his athleticism. Either way, people are still talking. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. Uh, let's move on because we spent a lot of time about this card here. The other, there's two other news pieces I want to hop into before we move on to UFC Mexico City, which is this weekend. Nick Newell got a deal with Bellator and he signed a multi-fight deal and everyone's kind of like praising this deal. Are you, um, where do you stand on this situation here? Uh, Nick Newell fought his way into Bellator. He won his fight recently. I think he won it via submission. I think he put the guy to sleep actually. And, you know, Nick Newell is known as being the one individual, the, the fighter with only one full arm. His other arm is uh, amputated right below the elbow. But he's been more than capable. I think he was a former World Series of Fighting. Um, cha- oh, no, he wasn't a champion. He challenged. He, he challenged. For, yeah, he challenged for the for the belt there. And we know he fought on a contender series. I think he got a raw deal there against because of who they put him against. They put him against a veteran that other fighters don't seem to get placed against when they're on the contender series. And he got he got basically grapple fucked for that fight there. But what are your thoughts about Nick Newell and Bellator? And what was his what would his legacy be when it's all said and done? You know, people are gonna bash Nick Newell, but I can uh we can we we can make a couple things clear right now. Nick Newell lasted longer against Justin Gaethje than Donald Cerrone, James Vick, and Edson Barboza lasted all put together. So if you're telling me he's not a certain caliber of fighter or a certain skill set of fighter. We had three ranked fighters, all all went out in less than a minute. And Nick Newell, who went, what, got it was a second round KO, I think. I think he got out of the first round. Either way, he was much more competitive than either one of these guys. We can talk about age, whatever, Justin's changes. Fact of the matter is, he went with one of the best in the world, because Justin was still one of the best 55ers in the world at that point, And he was able to hold his own and get his respect. I think Newell's a good fighter. And I think he wants to, I think he, 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 he understands the responsibility of his, of his um what do you call it disability maybe some people will say it is i know it's not but that's the best way i can think of it at the moment i think he understands the responsibility that comes with it i think he understands how much he means to people and the encouragement and the the drive he gives some people because they're seeing what he's doing you know i met a guy who runs his own vending machine business he's got one arm and his partner tells me he outworks everybody and it's it's a pride and there's a responsibility and a weight you have to carry with that. But I also think Nick Newell just wants to be seen as a fighter. I think he understands the other aspect of it, but I think at the end of the day, he wants to be considered and respected as a fighter, not as a sideshow, not as somebody people had pity on. Even in that fight where he got a bad matchup in the contender series, I think he preferred it that way. I don't think he wanted an easy touch. I think he wanted to earn his way into the UFC or earn his way out of it. He didn't want any favors. He doesn't want light touches. He doesn't want easy matchups. He wants guys who are good, real fighters who can either test him, make him better, or beat him. That's what he wants. And I think Bellator is going to give him that. And it's also at a little bit lower level. I think it's a little bit closer to where he's at as far as his level. But they still have some top fighters in the in the higher levels of his division. So he can, he can get that chance to show what he can do. And if he goes on a run in Bellator and maybe wins a title, or gets close to it, he might get another shot at the UFC. 
But I think his main thing is his legacy is he wants to be an inspiration. But more importantly, he wants to be seen as a regular fighter. The inspiration, the story is great. And I think he takes pride in that. But I think he really takes pride in the fact that regular fighters, other fighters respect him for what he can do in the cage and what he does with his skill set. It's not a, oh, he's a great story because he's got this, you know, this disability or he's missing an arm. He wants to be respected for what he can do or what whether what he can or what he can't do, who he fought or who he beat, who he lost to. That's who he wants to be respected by. So I think his ultimate legacy is he just wants to be considered a very good fighter who gave his best and did his best and was treated as such by every opponent he faced. Still on mute? Yep, definitely my phone phone muted. I've always appreciated Nick Newell for what he's kind of meant to this sport because he's shown that he's just like that, that consummate overachiever type of story and I think that that's going to play well for him in the long time after his career is over you know he can easily be like a motivational speaker and and do all of those different things Uh, but he in in MMA where there are so many stories that make you want to turn off the TV and walk away from the sport he's one of the ones that make you want to do the opposite he's someone that is a positive beacon in this sport much much the same way I talked about um, Dustin Poirier Heading into, uh, heading into his fight with Khabib Nurmagomedov. So I think that that this is is, is an important moment, and um, I'm liking what I'm uh, what, I, what I'm seeing from him. Uh, the last news bit I wanted to talk about was UFC is planning to rebook um, Stipe Miocic versus Cormier for their trilogy fight here, and we talked about this after Stipe won, and we wondered what direction they were going to go in and it looks now it's, it seems to be official according to Dana White that this is the this is the direction that, that we're that we're going in. Do you want to see this fight and what does this fight mean for the heavyweight division? Are we going to get the man who is considered the best heavy, UFC heavyweight of, of all time? Does this fight potentially uh, excite you? Well, in one instance there's no other big fight in the UFC right now. I mean, Stipe versus Ngannou that doesn't make any money. That that doesn't excite anybody because Ngannou, as good as he looked, he he got pr- pretty much dominated by Stipe except for a few moments. This is the biggest money fight for Stipe, and Stipe obviously does this for the money for his family. I'm not saying he doesn't want to be a champion, but it's the biggest money fight out there. As far as matchups, it's got to be the best fight out there for him as far as like competitive matchups because he's beating everybody else in the heavyweight division. The guy who beat him was Daniel Cormier, and he knocked him out. And even in losing to Stipe... If you go to if I watch that fight again, I'd say Daniel was up three fights, three, three rounds of one. At best, it could be two and two, but I'd say he won the first three rounds, and he was on his way. He was possibly on his way to winning the fourth until Stipe started attacking the body. So, when you look at the viable options out there for heavyweight, who else is out there who's put wins together? Walt Harris? Eh, I don't know that he beat Stipe. We already talked about his stylistic limitations, and that's not a big fight. Nobody's paying to see Walt Harris fight for the title. Francis Ngannou. Francis Ngannou against DC, I might pay to see that. Francis Ngannou against Stipe, eh, I don't know right now. It doesn't excite me. This is the best option for both guys. DC wins, he can win and go out on top. If he loses, he loses to the best heavyweight in UFC history, and he makes another payday, and he gets another big fight, and he can go off and ride off into retirement. Stipe wins, you know, he gets to say, I closed the close the book on this chapter of my life. I beat one of the greatest mixed martial artists twice. I'm the only guy who's beaten Daniel at heavyweight twice. And if he loses, well, he's no worse than second or third division and right up for another title shot when they, when Daniel eventually drops the title to retire. So it's the fight that makes the most sense. And it's probably the most interesting fight as far as storyline and actual competitiveness. True, I can agree with that because that I've always joked around with a hashtag that said ban heavyweight MMA. I'm not a fan of it. Everyone that knows me knows that I'm not a fan of it. And I'll watch this fight, but there isn't too much more within heavyweight MMA that I'm kind of willing to watch. Let's uh let's head over and talk about UFC Mexico. And this is a pretty interesting card to me. I was just just looking at it. We're gonna talk about the main event, but I wanted to talk about the fact that we have how many? We have uh one. Two, three, nope, nope, three, four. We have four women's fights on this card. And I think this is the most women's fights 
we've seen on one card in 2019. Uh, why do you think they selected this card to feature so many female fighters uh, at this point in the year? Well, I know they're going to put out Aldana on there because she's she's a Hispanic Latin descent, and having her and Grasso on the fight is a very good matchup. Plays to the crowd. It allows them to kind of have you know they same thing they did with Zhang in her country, kind of build up her brand a little bit, get her in front of those fans, have them get to see her fight live, and hopefully make a connection that it's going to carry over into other events they're in, other cards they're in, other uh, when they show to speak on the behalf of the UFC. They're trying to expand their brand. Uh, the the Hispanic culture, Mexican culture, they're big combat sports fans. And if you can ever get half of them to support MMA the way they support boxing, then MMA will surpass boxing because those fans will travel to see fights. They will spend all their money. They'll buy all the pay-per-views. They'll do whatever it takes to make sure that their fighter or the fighters they respect get the props and the money that they deserve. They, they'll, they'll put their money behind where their mouths are. A lot of fans say... Why isn't Tyrone Woodley big? Are you willing to travel to every one of his major fights? Can you get 8,000 people to travel 8,000 miles to go see him fight? Will you buy the pay-per-view instead of streaming it? Will you buy all the shirts and, and buy all the beer that has the special offers to get you the, the pay-per-view for cheaper? No, you won't. These people will. And that's why if the fighter can get on their good side, that fighter will get leverage and get to call shots with the UFC. That's how it works. And if you get the Hispanic fans on your back or you're one of them and you get on a win streak and they support you, uh, you're calling shots, man. You're a mainstream star first over in their part, and then you'll be a mainstream star in America at some point. One point or another, it'll bleed over and you'll become a mainstream star in America. That's how it works. Chavez, Marquez, Canelo, De La Hoya, even Ryan Garcia, who's not very good as a boxer, is a huge star because of that fan base. They're hoping to tap into that, at least for those two. But um, it's good to see more women's fights. Usually you get one or two, and they're not, they're not very spaced out in the car. So I like to see the women getting some more action. I think women need to be fighting more. I don't think they get enough fights. And I think it's stagnated all the divisions as a result because they're only getting four or five fights a month where the guys are getting, you know, in every division, they're getting 20 to 24 fights a month. So the divisions keep moving. Challenges keep getting defined. And people get to expand their fan base and their brand because they're being seen so much. The women don't get those opportunities, and I really hope this is a trend that they're going to continue going into next year and beyond. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely agree with you there because I, I enjoy kind of breaking down the women's fights and, and looking at them. Uh, let's, and let's continue there before we talk about the main event. Which women's fight on this card is most interesting to you? To me, it's clearly Carla Esparza versus um, Alexa Grasso, but what women's fight stands out to you the most? And we know you got Taco. We got to talk about uh, my fan favorite Angela Hill at some point in time too. Um, I guess the, the as far as important to fight, it has to be Esparza versus uh, Grasso, because that's really that's really a fight that's going to impact the division and could very very well move somebody up a spot or two in the rankings and potentially have them a fight or two away from a title shot. So that fight carries more weight. Uh, Hill, it, it's just really a tie for me because Aldana was a step away from becoming elite in the division and possibly being up for a title fight if she would have beat Pennington, but she lost. So now see if she can come back. They're setting her up to win. If she can come back and get on another win streak, that will put her in position to be an elite person in the Bantamweight division. As far as Angela Hill, it's the same thing I always say. She's got looks. She's very attractive. She's got an exciting style. She can fight. She fights in a manner that's pleasing to fans. And she's got charisma and character, but she can't ever put enough wins together to turn her into the star that she should be. She should be a huge star. She just can't win fights. She can't win the fight she needs to, to get to the spot she needs to be at. And it's very frustrating. You know, a lot of people say they favor certain people, they give certain people opportunities, but even in favoring people, you have to win. When Paige Van Zandt was becoming a huge star in the UFC, she put, what, four or five fights together wins? And they were impressive wins. Maybe not against the best competition, but they were impressive wins. And Angela has just never been able to do that. And she's got everything it takes. She just can't close the show. And it has cost her. It's it's cost her brand. It's cost her position in the UFC. In my opinion, if she could just put two or three wins together, she could be huge. She could be a huge star. She just has not found a way to do it. And that is constantly what's been holding her back. Nothing else. She's got the total package. She just can't win. She's like 
a better version of Megan Anderson. Megan Anderson's got a look. She's got a certain charisma. She just can't win. And if she just could, she'd be huge. The UFC is looking for an excuse to push these girls, but they can't get the job done. And until they do, they're never going to be able to, to cross over that hump and become the star that they want to be. I can't disagree with you there at all, man. Let's talk about this main event. Yair Rodriguez versus Jeremy Stevens. I've been looking at this fight, and I, actually, I, I totally forgot it was uh, going to occur. But as I sat back and looked at it and um, kind of did some early thoughts on this, I think Jeremy Stevens is going to play the spoiler here. Yeah, he has, you know, his record isn't um, very indicative of what he's been within MMA, specifically within the UFC. But I think that this is a fight that Yair is going to lose, especially if we look at the way that uh, Korean Zombie pieced them up for much of their fight. Jeremy Stevens isn't going to make that same mistake that Zombie made and rushed in to get himself knocked out by that upward elbow. What are your thoughts about this fight here, and who do you see coming out on top? <clears throat> to me, these guys are very... They're versions of each other. They're very experienced, very athletic, very well-conditioned, very tough fighters who just aren't really refined in their skill sets. They have some basic general skills that they do fairly well, but there's a lot of gaps. There's not a cohesive... There's not a cohesion between the techniques they use, how they set them up, and offense and defense. There's just, like, moments of brilliance filled with moments of medi- mediocrity. And they do things in this very unstructured, untechnical, unintelligent, sometimes sometimes effective, but very inefficient manner. And what saved them is, one, they're very durable. Two, they're in good shape. And three, they're, they're high-level athletes. And that's been able to mask, for the most part, the huge technical deficiencies both have. Jeremy Stevens is the guy who's not good at cutting off the cage. He's not good at fighting off the back foot. And as much as people tell me that he's a huge power puncher, a lot of his power comes from the fact that he loads up and, and just swings so hard, also serving himself up to be counter, which is, happens often. Luckily, he has a chin, allows him to carry through it. Um, Yari Rodriguez, he says he works at his boxing, but his boxing is not great it's more attribute based based off his hand speed his explosiveness and his ability to take punishment and throw a lot of volume his kickboxing and his striking that and it's very dynamic it's very athletic it's very it's very acrobatic but it's not particularly well structured in how he sets it up it's not very well structured as far as his defense it's not very well structured as far as his counters guys hit him and then he hits them back or they swing at him and he's so quick that he can fire a shot off it's not really him drawing shots out or setting guys up, it's more guys doing something and him having the timing and reaction to do something back that allows him to dictate the fight, that allows him to win the fight. So you have two very flawed fighters whose abilities have allowed them to get further than I feel their technical skills and their mental skills would allow them. If they they weren't as gifted as they are, neither one of them lasts this long in the UFC or got to the rankings they've gotten in the UFC. A lot of that has to do with their attributes. As far as the fight goes, it's something Jeremy Stevens can win. All he has to do is jab and aggressively attack the body and kick the legs. If I was Jeremy Stevens, the first three, four minutes, even the first round, I'm I might fake to the head. I'll fake the jab. I'll throw the jab to the head, but mostly I'm fading with the jab. I'm faking and I'm punishing the body because the way Yarier stands, because he's a traditional martial artist, when he backs up or he comes in and out, that that leg is trailing. So you can kick the hell out of that leg, take away some of his kicking power and kick take away some of his mobility. And he's not good defensively. He doesn't slip and roll and slide with his body. He just leaps in, leaps out, leans in, all that kind of nonsense. That makes it hard to hit him clean, even though, because he's fast. Not because he's technically great. He's got good timing and he's fast. So it's hard to hit him to the head. So just unload to the body. Everything to the body, first two rounds. Everything kick to the leg, inside, outside. Everything punch to the chest, punch to the body, punch to the shoulders. Just wear him out. Take that gas tank. Because they say he doesn't get tired. But people don't touch him to the body. When you do, he starts slowing down a bit. He gets a little tired. His his ability to pull the trigger hesitates a little bit. So if I'm Jeremy Stevens, establish my jab, I keep my defense tight, and I'm just punishing him to the body. Every time he kicks me, I'm kicking to the legs. Every time he kicks me, I'm kicking to the legs. Every time he punches me, I'm going to the body. He swings high, going to the body. I go for a takedown, I'm just using it to get him to the fence, and I'm unloading to the body. Walk him down, take some of the spring out of his step. The KO should be there later. But once again, that requires Jeremy Stevens to be poised, 
and to be disciplined, two things he has never been in his life when he's not facing a guy who he doesn't have a clear advantage athletically, i.e. when he fought Gilbert Melendez. Much better athlete, much fresher fighter at that stage. Gilbert was easy work because Gilbert didn't have anything for him. Yair is a comparable athlete, and when he's facing a comparable athletic threat, he tends to fight dumb, which I'm assuming he's going to do this time. And for Yair to win, it's pretty much the same thing. Establish a distance, use your fakes, use your timing, punish the body. Jeremy Stevens has a good chin. He's a big hitter. He will take a shot because he's going to load up and unload on you, and he knows he can take yours, you can't take his. And when he's in those kind of fights, as the fight goes on, he kind of finds his rhythm. He gets a little more technical. He gets a little bit more controlled. If I'm your Rodriguez, front kick, side kick, spin kick, snap kick, push kick to the body. I'm ripping his legs up, taking away the punching power. I'm ripping him to the body, taking away his conditioning, and I'm going to finish him off. But once again, that requires a poise and discipline that you never see from Yair unless he has a huge advantage over somebody, such as his fight with BJ Penn. But every other fight has been back and forth, wild exchanges, crazy scrambles, back and forth, him getting hit, the other guy getting hit. Same thing with Jeremy Stevens. So really, this fight is a toss-up. I'm going to assume Jeremy's not quite the athlete he used to be, and I'm going to think that Yair is at least smart enough at this stage to realize he needs to attack the body and show some show some structure in what he's doing and show uh, a deliberate patience in what he's doing and not just go for the highlight reel knockout. I think he's not... Neither one are technical, but I think he's got more tools and more ways to attack Jeremy Stevens. I just don't have any faith in Jeremy Stevens' ability to fight a controlled fight against a guy who's an actual athletic threat to him. So I'm going to say Yari Rodriguez wins this, but let's be honest. Both their defenses are terrible, and they're just likely either one to get knocked out by the other. So let me ask you this. Here's, here's, my, here's my question. Who's closer to a title shot, Rodriguez or Stevens? Uh, Yair, he's young. He's only lost once to Frankie Edgar. He's coming off of what some people call one twice. of the fights of the decade. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, he, who else did he lose to? He lost to Edgar Frankie and... Edgar. Was it... Uh, wasn't Thomas Almeida, was it? Um, let me look. I don't think he fought Almeida. Yeah, I wonder if he has lost twice in his career. No, he lost before he got to the UFC. Yeah, his only loss in the UFC is to Frankie Edgar. Correct. He's got he's got some he's got some spectacular wins. Um, that he only has that one loss. Jeremy Stevens, I kind of feel like he's gone as far as he can because even if he beats the Ayer Rodriguez, we still know he can't beat guys like Jose Aldo. We still know he can't beat guys like Frankie Edgar. You know, he's lost all those guys. He's lost to the best guys he's always fought when he got to a certain level. Where do you know what he is? Does anybody really think he can beat Max Holloway? No, Max Holloway always be, already beat him. You know, it's he's kind of. He is what he is. He's got the flaws that he's got. He might show some flashes, but he can't ever consistently make the adjustments and make the changes necessary to perform at the highest level. And I don't think that changes now. Even if he beats Yara Rodriguez, he's still two or three fights away from a title fight. There's three or four guys who are ahead of him. It's so interesting looking at his record. Like, he's lost to Zabit. He's lost to Jose Aldo. He's lost to Renato Moicano, Frankie Edgar, Max Holloway, Charles Oliveira, Cub Swanson. If you look at that group there, all of those men have been ranked within the top five of featherweight or their, their division at some point in time recently. Um, I'm not quite sure where, where Zabit is right now. Let me look. So at 145, Zabit is number five. So like I said, they've all been ranked within the top five. Before this, he was losing to Yves Edwards, Donald Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, Melma Gallard, Lost to Gleason Tebow, Joe Lozon, Spencer Fisher, Dean Thomas. I mean, he's been in the UFC since for more than a decade, for 12 years now. It, I think we forget about how good Stevens is, but he's not that upper echelon. Like he's not that top. He's not elite. He's an attribute fighter. When it comes down to it, when he's... When his power, his strength, his athleticism, his explosiveness is enough, when it's a determining factor, he wins. When it's not the determining factor because he's facing a comparable athlete or he's just facing a guy with a much better skill set, he always loses. And all those guys who face him are two things. One, they're either one or two things, or sometimes both. They're comparable to him athletically or they're way better skill-wise. If you take away his punching power and you say, how is he going to beat Jose Aldo? When we talked about the Jose Aldo fight. Only way he could beat him is if Jose was faded and he knocked him out. Nobody could tell me how 
Stevens could technically outclass Jose Aldo. Nobody could give me a manner. How does he technically beat him? Tell me. Out jab him? No. Counter punch him? No. Walk him down? No. How does he beat Max Holloway? He has to knock him out. Well, can he out wrestle him? No. Can he submit him? No. Can he outbox him? No. Can he kickbox him? No. Same thing with Cub Swanson. How does he beat him? How does he beat Donald Cerrone? He has to knock him out. He's he's essentially a one note fighter that gets by on his power and his athleticism. And when that is not the determining factor, when a guy can threaten him athletically or has enough skill to threaten him, take his athleticism out of the factor, make it not a factor, he he just loses. So if he beats Yair, that just tells me Yair is not elite. But we already know Yair is not elite. He hasn't proven that yet. And if Yair beats him, that doesn't necessarily mean he's elite because Jeremy Stevens just isn't an elite fighter himself. It really doesn't tell us anything about anybody. This is a good fight. It's an exciting fight. It'll move somebody up the rankings because of their records, because of the excitement of it. But does it really tell us anything about anybody? Unless Yair takes him down and dominates him and submits him, that's, that would surprise me. If he knocks him out, that ain't going to surprise me. If he goes five rounds, that's not going to surprise me. There's nothing they can do to surprise me except the thing they're least likely to do. So regardless of who wins this fight, we're not learning anything new. And there won't, unless they take in huge steps forwards technically, they're not going to show us anything that's going to impress us that says they can beat a Gregor. They can beat a, they can beat a, uh, I forgot the guy who, the other guy who's up for a title fight, um, Max Holloway or uh, Brian Ortega. They have, they're not going to show that. They're, they're just very unproven for as ranked as they are and as much attention as they get. They are very unproven at the world-class level. So this is just a fight to show that you're ready to take the next fight at the world-class level to prove that you are. When Yair moved up, he got smacked down by Frankie. When Jeremy Stevens moved up 10 other times, he got smacked down all 10 by the world-ranked fighter. Now they're just fighting for the opportunity to move up another level and test themselves again. That's basically what they're fighting for. True. I can agree with you on that there. So that's everything that I wanted to talk about today. Um, what oh, else? Oh, actually, actually, no, I, 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 I lied. I want to talk about Sajar Eubanks and Besh Korea because this is an interesting fight to me, especially seeing how Eubanks performed when she fought um, Aspen Ladd. What are your thoughts about this fight here? Um, I used to work a little bit with Betch. I knew her, her management and her coaches and stuff. At her best, Betch should, should win this fight. She hasn't been very active. And that's a concern. And when she's not active, she tends to not be focused in her training, not be in the best condition. I would still favor over Sajara because Sajara's biggest thing at flyweight was her power. At Bantamweight, her power is not anything special. At Bantamweight, her wrestling is not anything special. At Bantamweight, her strike is not anything special because she has the power to back it up. Technically, she's probably a better striker than Betch. But in my opinion, Betch is a better counterpuncher and has shown a, a better sense of control and patience and accuracy when fighting a higher level of athlete and a higher level of fighter. And I think that's going to be the difference. The only thing that's going to hinder Betch is, one, Sajara is a much better grappler, even though she never shows it in her fights. She's never really gone to work on somebody on the ground against anybody of note. And secondly, Sajara Eubanks has been fairly active in fighting. This will be her third fight in a calendar year. This is going to be Betch's second fight in, like, almost, what, four or five months? So there's a lot of downtime she's had, and, and historically, in my opinion, Betch hasn't been great when she's had more downtime. If Betch is really 100% focused and into the fight, I think she wins because she's always had a good chin, and even though she does get tired, she, she's shown that she can mentally fight through exhaustion at a high pace and fight a high pace or fight in a manner that's smart enough that she can navigate exhaustion. Sajara Eubanks still hasn't shown that. And it's hard for me to remember, it's, it's hard for me to pick the girl who kind of got bullied in spots by Roxy Matafari and a girl who essentially had a fight won against Aspen Ladd and just was unable to close the show because she, she, she got tired. Essentially, she got tired, started getting hit, the fight started turning, and she had no ability to turn the fight back around once it got out of her hands. So she can jump on Betch early, she can put on a show, she could probably take her out, but the longer the fight goes, historically speaking, Bet should be an advantage. She, in my opinion, is a less athletically gifted fighter, but a much, much craftier fighter and a little bit, little bit smarter fighter. Good thoughts there, sir. So, and I just, that, oh, I'm sorry. Can ahead. I just make you one said, quick yeah, thing about ahead. the Grasso Esparza fight? Go ahead. Yeah. Go right on ahead, sir. Um, the Esparza fight, I want everybody to, I know, I know I crack on Carlos Esparza a lot, but the fact of the matter is, 
She is a true professional in mixed martial arts. A lot of fighters say, I'm getting better, I'm working all these skill sets. But if you look at them, they're the same fighter they were when they began. They haven't changed their strength and conditioning. They haven't changed their point of emphasis. They haven't rounded out their game to handle spots, sp bad spots they're put into. And if you look at Carla Esparza, win or lose, she has slowly, slowly shown um, more cohesion in her striking, more cohesion between her striking and her, and her wrestling. And more importantly, she's shown enhanced and more discipline and more structured defensive grappling. I know she lost to Suarez, and Suarez put it on her late. But if you watch that fight carefully, she was able to get takedowns. She was able to defend takedowns. She was able to threaten from the bottom. And for the most part, she was able to avoid punishment and get back to her feet in a few spots against the best wrestler in women's mixed martial arts right now. She was able to do that. She was able to push as far as push Suarez and show holes in her game because she rounded out her full MMA game. She realized she didn't have the athleticism to just wrestle girls. She understands she can't just load up on power shots. She actually had to come up with a system, master that system, and find plan Bs, Cs, and Ds for when plan A did not work and put her in the spot she needed to work in. And I really admire Esparza for that because a lot of there's a lot more talented fighters who haven't done that. And as a result, you're seeing them go on two, three, four fight lose, losing streaks. Some of them aren't, aren't even in the division anymore, aren't even in the UFC as a result of that. So I have to give props to Carla Esparza. And that's what really makes this fight with Grasso important because the fight with Kovacavich, Kovacavich's team didn't develop her. So it was easy work for Grasso. And a lot of people are saying Grasso's a new and improved. We're going to find out this Saturday, Sunday, whatever. We're going to find out how improved she is because she's going to fight somebody who's not going to be easy to hit someone who's not going to be easy to dissuade and somebody who's a threat, whether they're on the ground defensively, offensively, or in a neutral stalemate position. As far as it has answers for everything, her lack of athleticism and size often is what hinders her in her ability to execute. But she has all the right ideas and she has all the right strategies. The question is, can Grasso make her work hard enough to get to the spot she wants to punish her enough to break her down and turn the fight? If she can't, keep away from those takedowns and really early on stay in her P's and Q's and outwork her, keep her distance, punish the body, jab, pivot out, create those angles. As far as it's going to get her hands on her, she's going to chip her up and she's going to walk her down the same way that she did Calvillo, the same way she almost did to Claudia Gadelia. It's going to be up to Grasso's people for her to use her limb, to use technical boxing, not just pressure, not just volume, but technical, sharp, accurate, active boxing to control the distance, to extend as far as a, and to expose her physical limitations for the win. Um, I'm going to say that Grasso's got the talent, and I think she's turned a corner, but I will say that historically, Grasso's been kind of a head case, because talent-wise, she, should, she shouldn't really have some of the losses she's had, but she can't ever seem to put it together. It seems like she's got that focus back now, but against somebody like Carla Esparza, we're going to find out if she does or not. Well, let's dive into that, because Grasso only has two losses. The loss of Suarez... I mean, Suarez has been a world beater, and unless if her neck injuries are super serious, she may be the next title contender. And then she lost to Felice Herrick. That fight, I could see how you can question that one because that was an expectation of her to um, get over on Felice and kind of submit herself there. I agree with you when it comes to Esparza because you look at her record. I mean, she's another one of those fighters that only loses to the best. If Even if you go all the way back, to her early career where she lost to Megumi Fuji, who was huge compared to her. She lost to um, Jessica Aguilar when Aguilar was at her peak back in Bellator as well. She, she lost to Ioana, who at the time we thought was one of the greatest uh, women's fighters in, in the sport. She lost to Randa Marcos, a split decision there. She lost to Claudia Gadelia, another perennial contender, another split decision there. And you, like you said, she was hanging with Tatiana. Well, she, I'm not going to say she was hanging with Tatiana Suarez, but she was surviving. She was making her work. She was making yeah, her she work. She was surviving much more than Alexa Grasso was making her um, work before she got yeah. finished. So, yeah, she's definitely someone who continues to get better. She continues to um, overachieve, kind of like we talked about with uh, uh, Jeremy Stevens there. She continues to overachieve. And I appreciate that about her. She's 14 and 6, 31 years old. I don't think she ever gets back to the title picture unless if um, it had to be some ridiculous situation for her to get back to the title picture. She's currently ranked. I just closed it. I'm not sure where she's ranked. But, yeah, she's someone that's been able to excel much longer than people have thought. If Diego Sanchez had her mindset and her approach to training and technique and overall balance, he'd be in a better spot than he is right now. 
right now. He still has huge gaps in his fighting style, which is why he gets knocked out and why he's been on these losing streaks. Carlos Esparza realized, I'm not good enough to wrestle these people. I'm not a good enough wrestler. I'm not a good enough athlete. So I need to start finding better ways to set up my my wrestling. I need to be able to hang on the ground, on the feet, if I can't get the wrestling going early so I can get it going late. And I need to maintain my control and work on my submissions. And more importantly, work on what happens if I'm getting dominated on the ground. So I can create space and get back to my feet, or I can be a threat enough to make these people work so I can get the positions I need to get in. That's something... Tons of fighters who are much more talented or that have never addressed. And that's something that that's why I feel that she can be a threat to Alexa Crosso, because when she beat Cole Cavage and she beat uh, Heather Hart, Heather, not Heather Hardy, uh, Heather Joe Clark, she was essentially dominating those fights with her athleticism and her striking. She didn't have to think. She didn't have to figure anything out. She the, she hit people and the fight was basically in her favor. Against Esparza, that's not going to happen. I haven't seen anybody walk through Esparza yet. I doubt that Grosso does it. So what happens if Esparza doesn't go away when she lands that first flurry? What happens if Esparza puts her on her back? What if she puts Esparza on her back? Esparza gets in her submission. Is Grasso going to fight through it, or is she going to be a front runner? We don't know because we haven't seen it. But that Marcos fight is a good fight to look, make reference to because Marcos is a better athlete than Esparza. She's not a tougher athlete, not mentally. She's not, uh, she doesn't have a more defined skill set, and she doesn't have the poise or the professionalism of Esparza. And in the spots Marcos got her in, Marcos basically cost herself to fight, making dumb decisions. Carla Esparza is not going to make dumb decisions. If she gets to the spot, we might be talking about a finish. So this is, this is going to really tell us where Alexis Grasso is. Because the last time she fought an experienced, seasoned fighter, mentally she broke against Felice Herrick. Felice Herrick put her under pressure she didn't like. She fell apart. You know Carla Esparza and Felice are very good friends. And you know Carla is good for putting pressure on people mentally. So we're going to find out just how good Alexa is. Because she loses this fight, then the book is going to be out on her. Put some pressure on her, rough her up, she falls apart. And once they put the book out on you, unless you're an outstanding athlete, it's all downhill from there. It's been that way historically in, in every sport. Once the book, out is on, book is out on you, that's when you start losing. That's when the mystique is gone, and that's when you start going downhill. So she, this is a very important fight for her. Sparza loses, business as usual. Alexa Grasso loses. We got a whole nother problem. So yeah, man, I think we did, this is a great show today. We did, had a lot of analysis, a lot of a lot of thoughts here. Why don't you let everybody know what you're working on? I'm still I'm working on that series. I'm gonna it should be something coming out not this week. I should finish it up this weekend. Maybe maybe it should come by next week. And it's just gonna be kind of do's and don'ts. I'm gonna highlight some things that camps have done and give some examples of things they've done well and things they haven't and things that young fighters or fans can look for when you're assessing how well a camp is doing or how well a fighter is doing underneath the camp. Just like specific things I usually talk about on Twitter, I'm just going to kind of expound upon them so that people can be like, oh, this is what he means when he says this. Oh, this is what, here's an example. This person did this, and then you see him do well, everybody figured him out, and now they're losing. This is what he meant. And I'm just going to kind of highlight it a little bit and go maybe, maybe I'll do like individual articles of one through five or one through four, something like one through three, just to just get fans a little insight into the experiences I've had when talking to camps or talking to fighters. When we're trying to either scout somebody or they're asking me to scout their own fighters, say, how would you fight this person? True, true. And I'm working on the same old stuff, wrestling, doing some um, previews for ADCC, which is next week. Looking forward to that. Should be um, a hell of a showcase there. So as always, uh, check out my content at rgarcia underscore sports, where I'm talking everything mixed martial arts, professional wrestling, and so on and so on. Schwan, let them know where they can find you on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Black Jordan Green on Twitter. Got any questions for the show or just want my insight on a matchup or, or a camp or an approach, feel free to hit me up. I'm, I'm always willing to talk. Talk to anybody and everybody. True, true. And you can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Anchor FM. Thanks, sir. And as always, man, let's have a great night, and I appreciate your time. I'll be back next week. All right, man. Take it easy. Have a good one. Bye.